I'm so thrilled that you are here. This is gonna be a bit of a different conversation uh, for our community, but my challenge to you is to just lean in. Though it may be different and it's gonna come with different discussions and dialogue, uh, I think it will be helpful to every single one of us. And I need you to uh, do me a favor and announce the title of this series to your neighbor. Say, you can do this. Yeah, go ahead and tell your neighbor. You can do this. I think that is... Uh, part of the echo of scripture. I think scripture kind of echoes at us if you've maybe haven't thought of it in that terms. Uh, And I think one of the echoes is, hey, you can do this. You can live a life that looks like Christ in a world that rejects him. You can live a life that makes a difference and brings about positive change, hope, love, and grace. You can do this. You can live a healthy, thriving, God-honoring life um, in a world that maybe wants to dishonor the God that we serve. You you can do this, amen? And we're thrilled that you are here and we have so much to cover. And we are going to hang out in Romans chapter five, if you wanna write that down, Romans chapter five, verses one through five. Over here, I wanna talk about uh, some relationships and how that's important. Anyone agree that relationships are important? And over here, we need to talk about wisdom, someone say wisdom, and then beneath here, a couple things I want to talk about. One, I want to talk about country music. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. Country music, I want to talk about a lot of P words. Anyone like alliterations? Anyone like notes that come with the same letter at the start of the word? Uh, If you don't, I'm probably gonna drive you nuts. And uh, lastly, I wanna talk about stealing from my wife. (laughs) Yes, that's where we're gonna go today. And hopefully, it'll all come together. I don't know what it's like for you, uh, but I find that I am a mixed bag. I find that I have a lot of different interests and passions and things that I find amusing, and I just struggle with our world's insistence that you and I need to fit in these small categories. And sometimes when I feel boxed in, I I see it as a challenge to climb my way out. I just don't like being one-dimensional, and I think there's so much to life that we can enjoy. Why settle for just one thing? And sometimes I think the boxes make me claustrophobic. And, And I would say this in terms of of music, this is, this is certainly the case. I like all kinds of music. Wave at me if you like all kinds of music. Yeah, my kind of people, I don't think I'm unique in this. I, I think a lot of us like a variation of things. And so when it comes to working out, well, I like hip hop. I need a good beat. In fact, I need some violence in the lyrics to agitate me <laughs> also that I can aggressively go after my workout. If Kristen and I are cooking and we're having friends over for dinner, it's jazz and blues music, if we're indoors. In fact, I would say that my favorite music, if I had to pick apart from worship music, uh, is simply jazz music. And anyone who's ever been uh, to a jazz lounge and heard jazz music live, you know that there's no two jazz experiences alike. It's a spontaneous form of music and it's, it's fascinating to me. And if we're cooking outside and we're grilling out with friends over and I'm flipping some burgers, it has to be 80s rock and I am singing to all the anthems. Come on, wave at me if you love some 80s rock. Yeah. But if it's like a week we just had where the sun's out and it's beautiful, the windows are down and you're listening to country music. Come on, show up noise if you just gotta listen to some country music. And this week was amazing, was it not? I know we got a little bit of rain out there today, but I'll take rain today if it meant we had a week of paradise. Uh, This weather, I'm a Minnesota kid, and to have weather like this in April is outstanding because back home, we still have snow on the ground. I got a sunburn this week, and uh, I just am falling more and more in love with the state of Indiana. In fact, this week, yeah. My son, Miles, is, is playing baseball. He plays in this league in Noblesville. 
And this week was our uh, opening ceremonies for the league. And guys, you Indianans are just so next level. We had opening ceremonies where hundreds of kids were out on the field in their jerseys. It was amazing, food trucks and inflatables. And then they do the national anthem and at a little league opening ceremony, they had a flyover where an airplane flew over the diamond. You sports out here are just so intense, but I find myself thinking, I'm home. This is heaven on earth. I love this place. It's amazing. And so shout out to those running the program in Noblesville and shout out to those that are in Noblesville campus. Uh, but when the weather's right, the windows are down and it's country music. I find that I am uh, pretty intense as a, a parent. Anyone just agree with me on that? Maybe you can relate to that. I, I don't know if I'm doing this thing well, but I'm giving it my all. Parenting is a frustrating test that we don't get the results until our kids turn 30. And we don't realize that, hey, do, did we raise uh, good humans? Are they adding value to the world? And do they love Jesus? And are they gonna reproduce this in the children that they bring up? And it's an aggravating thing to me. So I try all these different things. And one of them is I, I love to uh, use music as a way of creating conversation with my kids. Like, hey, what do you make of this song? What do you think of these lyrics? What do you think the artist is trying to get across? What do you think of this story? Uh, what do you think about people having these experiences as their normal life? And there is this country music playlist that I subscribe to, and all the songs are story songs, which I think country music uh, corners the market when it comes to a good story embedded in a song. Now, some of them are fairly dramatic and depressing. By the end of it, homeboy loses his truck, his house, his girlfriend, his dog, and his tractor. <laughs> but if you listen to it in reverse, he kind of gets it all back. But we're, we're going down the road and we're listening to this song and uh, this old song comes on uh, by a guy by the name of Randy Travis. And the song starts out and it's a midnight bus ride headed to Mexico. And on this bus, there's a farmer, a teacher, a hooker, and a preacher. And it says that the bus driver runs a stop sign and they get in a wreck and three of the four lose their life. And the song is called Three Wooden Crosses. There are three wooden crosses on the side of the road. Why there's not four, only heaven knows. And the tension in the song is the farmer loses his life, the teacher loses his life, the preacher loses his life, but the hooker uh, is saved and spared. And the idea draws our attention to uh, legacy. It says in terms of the, the farmer, he leaves his legacy in his son. He embedded an affinity for agriculture. And so his son carries on the legacy. In terms of the teacher, she leaves her legacy uh, in imparting wisdom into her students. And as for the preacher, it says moments before he breathes his last breath, he hands his blood-stained Bible to the hooker. There's this line in the song that says, uh, life is not about what you take with you when you leave this world behind. It's what you leave behind when you go. And at the end of this song that comes with a, a, a solid tension, uh, the song says, and I heard this story from a preacher this Sunday. And he held up a bloodstained Bible and said, that preacher gave this Bible to my mother. It's a great song. And I say that because I think in that song, there comes this tension that you don't know what to do with, a tension that some would say is despicable, but it then ends with something that's beautiful. And I am convinced that no matter who you are, where you are, whatever walk of life you come from, there is something to this word of God that no matter what you come into this relationship with Christ with, you can go from despicable to beautiful because God is simply faithful. Anyone just thankful how good God is? I, I think that's amazing. And I love the Bible and 
I love reading old commentary on the Bible. I find that that is probably the, maybe the secret sauce to my preaching. I read uh, really smart things, and then I say them in a really dumb way. <laughs> I think that would be my approach. And I love reading things that uh, people said long ago, and I came across this quote uh, years ago, and it's one of my favorite quotes about the Bible. It says, the Bible is the father's portrait of the son painted by the spirit. Is that not good? I mean, think about that one. The Bible is the father's portrait of the son painted by the spirit. And I think that's fantastic. If you have your Bibles, if you open up to Romans chapter five, there's a lot going on here and, and I'm gonna move quickly. It says this, therefore, since we have been justified, someone say justified. This is a theological concept that is critical to our faith. And justification is a really remarkable idea. Essentially what it says is because of the finished work of the cross, when God looks at those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, he no longer sees our sin and our brokenness. He sees Jesus and his perfection and righteousness. Meaning justified means when God looks at me, he views me just as if I'd never sinned, justified. That's what he's talking about there. And the same is true for, for you as well. We have been justified by faith. Now watch this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting because justification is God's response to humanity's biggest dilemma. What was our biggest dilemma? We are sinful and, and broken and a wayward uh, humanity. And we all needed saving. And if you're not a Christian, just know you need saving. At the end of the day, when it matters most, uh, you cannot solve the biggest issue facing your life. And it is the issue of eternity and death. And Jesus shows up and he, he does this for us. And it's amazing. It says, Jesus shows up and addresses our biggest problem. And as a result, we now have peace. And I think what Paul is going to draw our attention to is this is how God works in our life, that if you trust him, uh, he will lead you through seasons of pain and seasons of different predicaments that are perplexing, and he will lead you through problems. But if you trust him, you will arrive at a place of peace. And in fact, I, I think there are problems and pain that every single one of us face, uh, but because God is so good, if you get to the other side and you discover not only peace, you discover power, you discover purpose, you even discover pleasure. There's a lot of P words. And that's what Hebrews is getting at uh, when it says about Jesus for the joy, pleasure, Set before him, Christ endured the cross pain. And I think sometimes our temptation to try to avoid pain is really problematic and it kind of deviates us from experiencing all that God really wants us to experience in this life. And Paul goes on to say some things that I think really lend themselves to the wisdom conversation. He says in verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And I, I love that idea of, of standing firm in the truth of God's word. And I believe those who stand on the word of God stand in the storms of life. No matter what comes your way, greater is he that's within you than he that's within the world. And there is a supernatural strength uh, that resides in you due to the Holy Spirit. We stand. It's, I love that idea. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What is hope? Uh, hope is a confident anticipation of things to come. And my question for you is, are you living with a confident anticipation of the things to come? Or have you subscribed to despair and pessimism and is that shaping your posture and approach to life? 
uh, as children of God, we, we live anchored to hope. We have a confident anticipation that we know our God is good. And somehow in his sovereignty, he works all things together for the good of those who trust him and are called upon according to his name and purposes. And I think a lot of times when I stand up here to preach, my agenda or aim is to create or spark a confident anticipation. Folks, God is good. He's trustworthy and he has your best interest in mind. And even when you feel like you're down to nothing, God is always up to something. In fact, yeah, I think much of scripture is, is a call to faithfulness. And here's the beauty about faithfulness. Faithfulness positions us to experience and discover God's faithfulness. And so the more faithful you remain to Christ, the more faithful you discover he is to you. But you gotta commit to that, that journey. But watch this in verse three. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Which initially you read that and you think, no, we don't. That's not our instinct. It's certainly not our intuition. But Paul is saying over time, that will become your mindset because you taste his goodness. You experience his faithfulness. So the next time you bump into something, you think God's got this. So I'm just going to praise him in advance for things that will only make sense in reverse. Can I get an amen? amen. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And watch this, verse five. And hope does not put us to shame which I'm always so concerned uh, with our congregation because I can just sense in my heart some of you uh, are just peddling shame, manufacturing shame, uh, holding on to shame. And quite honestly, your shame is no match for God's grace. You might as well just throw in the towel and receive this freedom. He says he doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And what Paul is getting at is he's saying there is a, a godly wisdom that runs against the grain of worldly wisdom. And if you trust God, despite the uniqueness and the circumstances of your life, you will discover his brilliance and his providence. And I, I think wisdom is uh, such an important conversation. In fact, all throughout scripture, there's this prompting for you and I to pray for wisdom. In fact, I would say, I would argue this, that I believe God's favorite prayer to answer is the wisdom prayer. In fact, I would say this, I don't think we would have to pray for miracles as much as we do if we were to just pray for wisdom as much as scripture tells us to. Come on, anyone else? Come on, don't leave me on an island up here. Have you ever gotten to a predicament where you were like, God, I need you to show up? You're asking for a miracle. And why are you asking for a miracle? Because there was a point where you didn't ask for wisdom and you subscribed to foolishness and, and now you need a miracle. I think if we prayed for more wisdom, maybe we wouldn't have to pray for as many miracles. It's not to negate the miracle conversation. It's just to say wisdom is so valuable. I was raised by remarkable parents who always prayed the same thing every night growing up as a child. And I would often scoff at this. Sometimes I would check out. I thought it was meaningless for the longest time. Now I find myself at uh, this point in life really thankful for the things that they prayed over my life. I feel like God has responded to the faith of my parents and I just get to be the recipient of their faith. My parents would always pray for a few things. One, they'd always pray for integrity. Two, they would always pray for creativity. Lord, help them think outside the box. Uh, they would always pray uh, for wisdom beyond our years. That was a statement that they always made. God, give them wisdom beyond their years. They would also pray for favor. God, would you give them favor with you and favor with people? 
And the last thing that they would always pray for every single night, even when we were young, is they would pray for our future spouses. Lord, whoever they are, wherever they are, would your hand be upon them and would you be good to them? And I think I married out of my league because my parents spent 20 some years praying I'd get it right. (laughs) But I I do think wisdom kind of comes to us in a a couple different categories. And and I would say this, I, I think the first comes by way of prayer that I think you can go to God, you can access uh, a supernatural wisdom where God can impart an ability to discern uh, so you can navigate this life that we're living. That's, that's amazing. I also think that there is a level of wisdom that comes in phases or, or stages. I think there is a level of wisdom that really only comes with time, longevity, experience which is one of the things I think our church is so blessed with. We have seasoned saints who have lived very faithful lives for long periods of time. And they have a wisdom uh, that uh, some of us don't currently possess. And I would just say for anyone who is uh, 50 and under, if you are not leaning into the wisdom that is within our community, you're missing it. In fact, I think you are towing the line in foolishness. Uh, We are blessed with really godly, wise people, and there's a level of wisdom that uh, comes with life, and we could gain that if we leaned into the relationships and gave permission uh, for people to speak into our lives. Have you ever looked at a, a family and thought, my goodness, They not only raised godly children, but now their godly children are raising godly children. Anytime I find someone, I'm like, you have a teenage granddaughter who loves and serves the Lord faithfully, I wanna have coffee with you because you have a wisdom that I could benefit from. And the younger generation, uh, we could humble ourselves and really benefit in this conversation. But the last category of wisdom And probably the weightiest, maybe most meaningful, purposeful uh, parts of wisdom comes by way of pain. And no one ever says amen to that. And I get it. I would say this, you can always profit from your problems. You can always profit from your problems. And if you trust your life, all that you are into the hands of a very good God, somehow he will be redemptive even in your pain. And your greatest source of pain will become your greatest source of purpose, power, maybe even pleasure. And my prayer is through this series that you will find the courage to stop avoiding the Uh, dilemmas you face in life and start leaning into the possibility that maybe just maybe God is going to use what I'm facing and going through to shape me into who he wants me to be. And this is where I think the conversation uh, around uh, therapy and dialogue is so critical. Hud McWilliams is mine and Kristen's therapist. And quite honestly, this is fairly nerve-wracking to share our personal therapist with our entire congregation. Uh, But Kristen and I, we just keep our dirt on the surface so you don't have to dig. And uh, (laughs) I just think uh, we're real people serving a real God, right? And that's a beautiful thing. And it's actually an idea that our group's pastor, Amber Wheeler, which shout out to her, she is a hero in our church who oversees all the small groups at all of our locations. And she puts together curriculum and the whole strategy. And it was her in a meeting that kind of triggered this idea. What if we had your personal therapist come in? And so we basically decided to bring HUD to town and we didn't structure the conversation. We didn't put an outline. We didn't really define topics. We just said, hit record and we'll talk. And Hud and I sat down and we captured five hours of content. And so this is going to be different because I'm going to push play and I'm just going to come back at three o'clock to to dismiss everybody. (laughs) Just kidding. But the idea was both all these sermons would start with a three to five minute kind of bumper video that I would preach out of. And then the team started looking at the content and saying, hey, 
it's, it's just, it's too good that we need to show more of the content. And so this video is going to be longer than usual, which for the Carmel crowd, that will be an adjustment, but just know everyone at all of our campuses is laughing at you guys because they already know video works. In fact, our Lafayette campus just had 2,000 people last week for Easter. I think it's, it's amazing. So I, I'm asking for your grace and that this, this video is gonna be a little longer, but I do think this conversation might be helpful. So folks, this is our first conversation between myself and Hud McWilliams. In this talk, I really wanna focus on where you kind of start in my mind, in my experience and in your writings with these ideas of wholeness, maturity, development. Um, talk to us about those concepts. Well, uh, I, think, I think we want life to be manageable. Yeah. And uh, so we chunk it up. And, uh, but that's exactly what Satan has done. He's, he's broken our worlds up into these discrete places. And if he can get us to just focus on one thing, yeah. uh, it, it seems like it mitigates against us integrating all that. And the word integrating is really a key word here. A lot of times we use the word balance. Mm. I would much prefer the word integration because integration is means wholeness and it's where we get our word holy from. Mm. And so uh, uh, we're fragmented and we compartmentalize and we use, do just one thing. So we get really good at theology or we get really good at and so we can give biblical answers, but they don't. But they don't resonate with my psychological side or my sociological side or my, you know, economic side or whatever. And I think everything matters to God. And so He's yeah. He's in the business of making us holy. Well, He does make us holy, and now we have to live into that somehow. And so that's part of what this is. Stop waiting for life to be easy. Yeah. You know, it's not designed to be easy. It's designed to stretch you and to grow you and to and to see what you're made out of. And you know, when you come off of a, out of a game that you've really played hard and you know, you win or lose, you feel satisfied. Yeah. I do, I mean, I, I, I played racquetball for 40 years and I kept playing with guys that were just so good. I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't even score, but mm. uh, I got better. And I got better because I played these guys and I would walk off satisfied because I'd I was growing, right? It was a, it was another challenge to yeah. step on the court with somebody that was a state champion or whatever. Drove, drove me nuts. I kept thinking, why am I on the court with these guys? I want somebody I can just slaughter. But you know, <laughs> it, it, slaughtering somebody wasn't nearly as much fun as being challenged. Yeah. And so, over time, I begin to realize this is a, this is an area we don't talk much about. God wants all of you, not just a part of you, not yeah. just a piece on Sunday, et cetera, but all throughout the week. What does it mean to pray without ceasing when Paul says stuff like that, rejoice always? Uh, we think, wow, I've got to go to work sometime, yeah. you know, but I think you could, there's no conflict between those things if we could just see that. Well, Hud, you, you wrote this book and <laughs> I've devoured this thing multiple times and scribbled all throughout its pages. Um, the book is called The Discipline of Disturbance and the subtitle is Stop Waiting for Life to Be Easy. And I'll just read uh, one line. I mean, it's page one, page 11, but it's the first page of the introduction. It says, people seldom genuinely want to grow. You go on to say, I've seen them reject redemptive change in favor of a superficial alteration that will do nothing to deepen their growth into wholeness. And I, I want you to, as we jump into this talk, talk to me about this idea of disturbance, the importance of disturbance, uh, why this needs to become a discipline, why we need to stop waiting for life to be easy, and, and what, are you, what are you proposing? Well, the title actually came from a growing understanding of uh, what I think the biblical message is about creation. I think we misunderstand the ideal, loving, very tender character of the of Eden for us. That it's this this place 
And, and I always thought it was a place that was free of conflict and had no disturbance in it. And the more I look at it, the more I believe I walked with the Lord and understand it, it life is designed to be disturbing because that's the way you grow. It, it keeps you moving. And when people tell their story, they tell their story about the places that were crisis or yeah. something that they overcome or a class that they didn't think they could pass that they passed or whatever. And th those are the stories we tell. You know, I made it up the mountain or I, I, we didn't, we lost our business and we started over again. You know, those are the stories that we tell. And those are very disturbing stories actually. And I think we resist them a lot of times instead of making them normative. Mm. And I think from a biblical standpoint, that's why it's a, it's a discipline to embrace the disturbance that life is if we will but let it be and see it. And it's designed to grow us. It's not yeah. designed to defeat us or crush us, although I think our adversary uses it that way. Our job is to, to discipline ourselves to understand that. And I think the garden was not safe and relationships are not designed to be safe. They're designed to be robust and hardy and we're, to, we're designed to wrestle and yeah. be stretched by them. So the disturbance idea is key, it seems like to me, to understanding that uh, instead of trying to get rid of conflict and trying to get rid of uh, you know things that are troubling, see them as opportunities, see them yeah. as a this is a this is a place where you can learn. This is this is where God will show up and be redemptive in this event, whatever the event is. And it doesn't matter. I mean, we can talk about really hard things like cancer, and we can talk about really great things like having a you know a, a windfall of some kind. It doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah, it takes the same substance in your soul to be able to manage both of those in a godly, life-giving joyful way, I guess would be the way wow. said. Yeah, and that idea that your development requires disturbance. Yes. You know, in the book you say, as long as we are alive, things can't be finished. And that trips a lot of people up. We're, we're trying to arrive, we're trying to check things off the box. Life is this never ending journey towards maturity and personal development. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Uh, we live in a Western culture that has uh, an overly Roman influence in it, might be a way to think about it, where uh, even our theology is legal. We think in legal terms. Uh, and we talk about God often in legal terms, like he's an accountant, he keeps track of your sins, or he's watching what you do, and a lot of us are kind of hovering down here, hoping we don't get smunched. What that's done to us, I think, is it's given us a, a sense of, if we can just reduce this down to the most central elements, uh, we will be uh, in good shape. But the most central elements are not reductionistic. The most central elements, biblically, go in exactly the opposite direction. So the further you go with God, the more the larger the questions, the more the demands, the greater the opportunity, the more the stretching, the more growth is there, uh, the more the more you'll be humbled and awed and struck dumb, really, yeah. uh, in, in terms of just stunned by God's grace and greatness. Uh, so when I write in there that you can't finish this, it's to move away from the binary thinking. And, and if we paid attention in the last five years, even politically and socially, at least in America, we have been so polarized. And the polarization comes from this thinking, this, this it's actually scientific thinking a lot of times, reductionistic, let's get it down to the core elements. Uh, I just think there's so many core elements in people that need to be attended to. So when Paul says, which I said earlier, Paul says, you're to grow up in all aspects. Well, this all aspects thing demands all aspects. So if you're gonna be whole, somehow I have to address all aspects. I can't address a few of them. And <clears throat> there's, a, there's a very fascinating uh, history, I guess, about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence came about from a guy who studied uh, self-deception 
And what, what he found was self-deception is so negative a term that people don't, aren't gonna gravitate to it and probably won't study it. And I'm forever meeting guys, pastors in particular, leaders who have great emotional intelligence in three or four areas. And they get by on that and they've been hired for that and they succeed at that. And, and if you look on the outside, they look great. But on the inside, yeah, they're missing the other 15 elements. And somehow those all need to be uh, boosted at the same time. All of them need to show up. All 20 elements comprise wholeness, if you will. And it's complex and it's difficult to have 20 elements, but you can't teach them intellectually. You have to teach them experientially. And, and I think what we want is we want this binary thinking. Well, binary thinking would work like this. I'm finished. I completed that course. I now know this field, for instance. Uh, I think we try to win. I think winning's way overrated. I think what we're supposed to do is enter the arena and be challenged. And it's not whether you win or lose, it's how well you play. Yeah. Because that's what your test is. Your test is uh, against you, in a sense, against your own capacity and your own abilities, etc. We often pit it against somebody else. And, and I like the phrase, came from a long time ago, but God gives us commands full well knowing we can't keep them. Mm. And I often wondered theologically, why, why do you do that? Yeah. You know, well, we think we can get it right. We think if we go to another Bible study, we think if we read another book, we think if we take another class, we think if we go into ministry, we think something, some criteria will, will finish this course, will end this process for us. And the older I get, the more I realize no, it's, it's you're given more opportunity. Now I can trust you with more is one way you can say it. Is he doing that because he's being mean? No, he's doing that because that's the way you're made. When he created you in his image, he created you to be creative and he created you beautiful and he created you layered and dimensional and most of us don't want to touch any of that. So we want, we want it to be done or finished. We want to be right. We want to win. We want, we want it to be clear. Yeah. And I don't think clarity is ours to have. I think relationship is ours to have. So how do we be in relationship, a vibrant relationship with the holy without thinking about it in terms of an end game? Like, I'm gonna be in heaven. No, that's not the goal. The goal is to be in relationship. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where it is. What matters is that it is that I'm in relationship with God Almighty. And then I'm in relationship with myself, if you will, in a more ever-increasing, robust way. Hmm. Uh, I just don't think it ever ends. I think, you know, we're unrealistic about our own development, but then we're also very unrealistic about the development of other people, which is evident in our inability to extend grace when someone disappoints us or comes up short. Um, it's clear somewhere in our assumptions where you should know better, you're an adult, you should be mature enough to no longer do these things. And I, I just think our whole assumption of maturity is, is off. And I know for me, like this was a, a really daunting thing when I first became a pastor mm -hmm. because I quickly bumped into, you know, you come out of school and a lot of pastors experience this. There, there's this unspoken assumption that, hey, once you come out of seminary, you're a spiritually mature, fully finished Christ follower. And, and you immediately feel that pressure that you are still very much, and you know, I became a pastor in my early 20s, still very early in my own personal development and journey of maturity. And that came with like a, a pretty significant imposter complex of um, knowing my area, my need to grow. Somebody's gonna find out. And someone's gonna find <laughs> out I'm, I'm not fully finished, I'm not completed. And you in the book, I, I got, let's see if I can find the page. You, you talk about completion as, um, something that can't fully be accomplished in this life, nonetheless, 
You say complete maturity is an unattainable goal, but it is the goal ne nevertheless. It's a little bit like trying to get in shape. Yeah. Uh, when are you in shape? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> as I get older, I, I can't do the things I used to do uh, physically, even though I work at them or I've kept working at them. You know, I can't run as fast, as far as I used to. Uh, does that mean I'm not in shape? Yeah. Or is that a moving target and then you can't store up shapeness? And I think that's the way, that, that to me is one of the best illustrations of this. You know, I think God wants me to be in shape in my marriage and he wants my marriage to be in shape. And so I need to be in shape relationally and I need to be current and in shape physically and emotionally and spiritually and every other dimension. And, and it takes work and, and then it, and what shapeness was yesterday isn't today. So yesterday doesn't, I don't get credit for yesterday today. You know, I have to go back to the gym today. And wholeness is what God offers. I think he, he is reintegrating us. He is putting us back together. Uh, the words, uh, as I understand it, the words for Satan and Lucifer and Beelzebub and scripture, those words all have rooted in the Hebrew anyway, this idea of fragmentation, separation, divorce, splitting. Uh, well, that's what happened in the garden. We were separated from God. Yeah. And then the arc of the biblical message is that he's about bringing back that relationship. God wanted to dwell with us. He, he, he returns to, and as Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think that's Colossians 1.27. And he says, Christ where? In you. So he wants this very intimate relationship with us. And, and we want it completed so that, it, so that we don't have to keep paying attention, if you will. I do want to go back to something you talked about, you know, with our westernized culture, Roman influence. Uh, in terms of maturity, you said it's, it's less intellectual and more experiential, you know, and from there you, you went into the relational risks that that mm -hmm. requires. Um, Unpack what you mean by maturity is so much more experiential than it is intellectual. Tell you a little story, maybe that'll help help this. Uh, there was a general in the army, but his staff was a mess. He had he had the highest turnover in the Pentagon at the time, and so to, in order to help him, quote help him, the person that was helping him said something like. Well, let's watch how you do this meeting. So I'll take notes, you do the meeting, we'll debrief you. So they went and did the meeting and one of his staff brought up something and he just shut her down. After the meeting, we get back to his office and processing that. Now, experientially processing what he had just done. And he, and he got to this one event with this gal and he realized what he'd done. He didn't listen to her. He didn't honor her, he didn't acknowledge her. Whether he disagreed with her or not, it's immaterial. And he said, oh my goodness. So he stood up and he said, let's, let's go. And he walked off to her office and of course she stood at attention and all this and he said, sit down. He said, I, I need to apologize to you. I was so wrong. I didn't listen to you. You're on my staff. You're here for a reason. You've, you've got this to this place experientially he realized it wasn't an intellectual thing. Now it was a yeah. visceral thing. Oh goodness, I damaged this. Do you think he, do you think he treated her differently from then on? Do you think she saw him differently? Well, that's the experiential part of this. And I think a lot of times we don't get that kind of feedback. We don't allow it. So people in your position in particular or executives have a fiercely difficult time getting clear, honest, robust feedback. Yeah. Uh, because people are afraid and people don't know how, the, how it'll turn out and they fear for their jobs and, you know, they've got, I don't know, a sick mother or something and they're worried about them and, you know, all these factors, right? Yeah. Uh, and we shut each other down in marriage all the time. So if this person who is the closest to me, who I'm supposed to be wild about, I, sh I shut down, think about how I shut down my staff or whatever, simply because of my position, nothing else. Yeah. 
which I don't Sometimes want. Sometimes you don't even realize you're doing exactly. it. Exactly. You know, and that was, I mean, I've, I've come up short in that area a lot in my ministry journey, you know, where I was completely naive and ignorant to the fact that as God was entrusting us with more influence, people were starting to attach more weight to my words and presence. That for me, I didn't realize people's perception of me was changing as I was growing in leadership. And so I'm looking at the same person in the mirror and I've never been very impressed by who looks back at me. So to reconcile that with, hey, in people's minds, I'm, I'm becoming more impressive than maybe I need to be or what is accurate. And not even realizing, hey, I'm not, I'm not getting consistent or honest feedback. And so then having to learn, like, hey, you have to like press for that, solicit for that. You have to uh, create space where feedback is normal. Um, otherwise, you're, you're just gonna, as a leader, constantly be operating in the dark with blind spots. Can we show our appreciation to HUD? You know, I'll wrap this up. My uh, wife is, um, she's just brilliant. She's uh, just an insightful person to me. And I, I wish I could get her to speak more. She just doesn't really like the platform. Uh, but there was this time where she was asked to speak at this leadership event. And she did this talk on authenticity and transparency. And I, I thought it was fascinating. And so this is where I'm going to steal her content. Um, <laughs> And, and this is how she would say it. See if I can spare and spell that right. She says in this talk, she said, authenticity is telling everybody something. Transparency is telling somebody everything. And I thought that was a good distinction. I think every single one of us should aim to live authentic lives. Um, you don't wanna live a lie. You don't wanna walk around with a mask on upholding some facade. Uh, you, you have to be able to tell everybody something. Uh, but then you also need to define who are those people who uh, you just tell everything to. And if you don't develop that level of wisdom and discernment, uh, you will give the wrong people access to shaping your life. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who uh, wanna make an assessment about your life and those who wanna make an investment into your life. And I think a real clunky but clarifying question that we all must ask is, who are the few, right? Because in this talk, Kristen said, uh, if you tell your problems to a few people, you're looking for help. If you tell your problems to a lot of people, you're looking for attention. And I just thought that was good. Um, who are the few people, who are the few godly people who are wise, who have your best interest in mind, who you need to give access and authority to, who are the few godly and wise people in your life who have your best interest in mind, who you need to give access and authority to. Our culture cringes around the conversation of authority and accountability, and it's, it's a massive blind spot, and it's foolish. We are better together. I recently read an article that says the average person doesn't recognize themselves from the back because we're not used to seeing ourselves from that angle. We either need a mirror or we need a photo. Um, and, and we need help to see a different angle. And I think the courageous and the healthy among us embrace brutal facts over blind spots. Uh, just help me see the things in my life that I could grow. Who do I need to give access and authority uh, to? And I think the pushback on that will be, well, I don't have anyone in my life who fits that criteria to which I think is something you need to pay attention to. And I would say, this is a great space for you to find those people. You are certainly seated, seated among those people. And there are groups being offered at the launch of this series where you can begin to develop relationships with people who could serve that purpose in your life. And it's learning to be in relationship 
also that we can thrive and really get out of this life, the life Jesus died to give us. And to end once more with country music, I believe Garth Brooks is the goat. Wave at me if you think Garth Brooks is the goat. Yeah, I think he's, he's the best. I think his songs lyrically uh, are just set apart and he captures a lot of things that really, really explain some of the dynamics in life. He has this one song called Unanswered Prayers. And the song goes, uh, just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And as I introduced them, the past came back to me. And I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I had wanted for all time. And each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. But how's the chorus go? But sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Apparently he showed up to the football game and old girl was looking ratchet. And he was like, <laughs> God, I'm just thankful that you didn't answer that one. And I, I just think you gotta give God time to work his plan out in your life. Like there's gonna be things you get down the road and you're like, I'm thankful he didn't say yes to that. Uh, probably my favorite song of his is called The River, um, which last week I rapped. I feel like maybe I should try singing it because I don't remember some of the lyrics unless I sing them. Any Garth Brooks fans? And uh, you know, a dream is like a river ever changing where it flows. It's a great lyric. And probably his most famous song, and this is where I close, is uh, the song called The Dance. And the lyrics are as follow. He says, holding you, I held everything. And for a moment, wasn't I the king? But if I'd only known how the king would fall, well, then who's to say, you know, I might have changed it all, but I'm glad I didn't know the way it all would end, the way it all would go. My life is better left a chance I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. I think that's a great lyric because I think we can all relate to loss and grief and relational strife. But here's the thing. You can't live with a posture and an approach that constantly tries to avoid pain because you might miss the dance and the beauty and all that is embodied in this life that you and I get to experience. Amen. Church, you can do this. You can do this. Amen.